There's the big headlines people are talking about, and then there's the important stories you need to know about. We do both. Your local week reviewed. Next. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome, I'm Nick Haynes, and we're on a mission this half hour to connect the dots for you on the week's most impactful, confusing, and befuddling local news stories. On that journey with us is Kyle Palmer, who leads the Shawnee Mission Post. Mr. Up-to-date on KCUR, Steve Kraske. Mary Sanchez from Flatland, our own digital newsroom here at Kansas City PBS. And Michael Mahoney, Chief Political Analyst for KMBC 9 News. Last week, while we were bringing you newsmaker guests on both sides of the Kansas abortion amendment, the governor's office was hosting a big party. This is a day to celebrate, you know, uh, we just landed the largest economic development project in the history of our state. Kansas officials may still be nursing hangovers this week after announcing they're building what they claim will be the largest electric vehicle battery plant in the world on the site of the former Sunflower Army Ammunition Plant in the Johnson County city of DeSoto. But for all the hoopla, there are more questions than answers this week. So far, there's no word on when the $4 billion plant would be built, and it's still unclear under what conditions the Japanese electronics giant could still pull out of the deal. Could ongoing contamination issues at their chosen site derail construction and Steve Kraske could increase fears of a recession and supply chain difficulties prompt Panasonic to hit the pause button. Well I think lots of things are possible here Nick. I just would point out that Panasonic and its leadership appear to be a fairly conservative thoughtful uh, careful group. I mean, there was a reason why there was a three and a half month delay between the time when Kansas officials thought this thing was going to be announced and when it ultimately was. And what you hear from officials was that they were, the Panasonic folks were working behind the scenes to answer many of the questions that you're raising here. But sure, could something short circuit this thing going forward? There are uh, lots of environmental issues still with that site, uh, yeah. still being worked through. So the answer is yes. Well, what happened to that, Kyle? We were always told at the Sunflower Army ammunition plant that there was this huge contamination there that could take years to remediate. How, could that be a problem still for this? Uh, well, it's still going to take years to remediate. In fact, the U.S. Army had a meeting in DeSoto the night before we we're taping this, or earlier this week, saying that it's still going to be until 2028 before that site they anticipate is fully cleaned up. Uh, also, bear in mind, though, that this Panasonic facility, as big as it is, is only going to be a small portion of this site, about three to 400 acres of what the Army says has already been remediated, right. and so yeah. they're still working on cleaning it up, but it's not supposed to be on the portion of land where this site is going to go. But it, they're not idle concerns for sure, because that's what held up development there for decades. But, you know, Intel in Ohio is building this huge mega project there with uh, microchips, but they are already putting the, whole, the pause button on that, Michael, because of supply chain issues. They can't get some of those raw materials. And, that, and that's a possibility here, too, but... Uh, um, it, Let's be honest about this. This is a big score for the state of Kansas if, if, if it comes through. And uh, I think uh, Steve is right. The Panasonic has probably spent that uh, 90 days or so crossing the T's, dotting the I's, double-checking double the uh, things like that. This, this plant won't be online for 
a, a couple of more years. It is paired up with another Panasonic plant in Texas, and it is about electronic vehicles, which is going to eventually be a major part of transportation in America. Big score, Mary, but at what price? I see some local economists saying, boy, for every single job they're bringing in of these 4000 it's costing the state $207,000 to land that job. Uh, of course, a lot of Republican lawmakers also signing off on this deal, but is that just the price today of being able to get a big mega company to come to your state? Well, it is in some venues. Um, the interesting thing about the Panasonic deal, though, is that, as Michael just mentioned, it's tied to that Tesla plant in Texas. So apparently it was either going to be Kansas or Oklahoma. And I wonder, I mean, with these delays, you know, COVID-related supply chain, is it still a possibility that Oklahoma could come in if we have problems, for whatever rhyme or reason, at the old Sunflower plant? I don't know. Well, any Johnson County with a sense of history knows this site in particular. It has a checkered history. I mean, I remember when I, when I was in high school, the big thing is they were going to build the, uh, the Wizard of Oz theme yes, park. Right. On this I was site. looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, never came to fruition in part because of the contamination issues, also because I think that developer just maybe overpromised. But still, um, this is a site that has had its issues. And so I think any person who has um, been around Johnson County for any amount of time is looking at this deal with, still with bated breath. We're told, by the way, Steve, Kraski, that the economy is the biggest election issue on people's minds this uh, in this midterm year. Does this decision then to bring Panasonic to Kansas turbocharge Governor Laura Kelly's re-election campaign? Oh, I think it does. It would tur turbocharge any governor in a similar situation, Mike. I think most voters are sophisticated enough to know that Governor Laura Kelly doesn't really have much to say about inflation and what's going on uh, on that score. But they see this kind of thing happening along with that cut in the food sales tax that goes into effect in the new year. Two big wins that most people can relate to for Governor Kelly. To, uh, to build off Steve's point on, on, on this, one of the things that her likely Republican opponent, Derek Schmidt, is going to uh, campaign on is he wants to bring or keep young Kansas people in Kansas. This plan is going to be an example of how that is going to hap uh, happen. And this is the sort of thing that Kelly is going to campaign upon, saying, we have had some difficult times, but I've been a steady steward at the helm. We'll see a, how it a plays lot of out. People, but basically at this point, though, Kyle, want to know, how do you get one of these jobs? They're saying these above average wages. These are going to be over $50,000, and there are 4,000 of them. And do we have any sense today as how you can apply for any of these positions? I think it might be a little too early for that. And I, I do know a lot of Johnson Counties who would take issue with the idea of $50,000 being a livable income in Johnson County, but um, I think it's still too early to, to, to figure out exactly what the impact could be for people who already live in Johnson County. 4,000 jobs is a lot of uh, jobs, but uh, historical context here, at, at its height, Sunflower Ammunition Plant, I think, employed over 25,000 people. Still, a, a manufacturing plant of this size and scope in Johnson County, of course, is a big deal. If you want a job out there, maybe check out Johnson County Community College. They'll be doing some training for these workers, Mike. Head governor... Uh, you're Nick. That's Mike. Right. I had Governor Kelly on the show this week, and she points mm -hmm. out that the work has already begun out there. Panasonic will be break ground in the fall, completed late next year, fully operational early 2024. Now, this is the kind of thing, very quickly, that could literally change the nature of DeSoto, Kansas. This is a oh, really sure. small town. And... It may That's not be clear. 10 years from now. I, I'm not always for the better. Housing prices, I'm exactly. assuming, are going to go up. The schools are going to face a lot of pressures as well, aren't they? Absolutely. There's the infrastructure of DeSoto. And people who live in DeSoto right now live there because they like the more quaint, smaller area that it is. It's not really rural, but it's kind of sort of is. Change. Yep. And that's going to change. That, that's 
hard for people. I, I'm curious why this project, by the way, is getting so much more attention than another big project announced recently in our area. That's the new million square foot data center that Facebook owner Meta has agreed to build in Kansas City's Northland. According to the Star, Facebook says it's willing to invest up to $40 billion on this project. That's 10 times as big as the Kansas uh, Panasonic plant. And the state of Missouri and the city of Kansas City have agreed already to $1.8 billion in incentives. That's twice as much as is going to that Kansas Panasonic plant. So how, how come we don't get as much attention on this? And why has this Panasonic deal taken up all of the news oxygen? Well, both are big deals. The Panasonic thing, the biggest uh, private uh, in development uh, investment in the state of Kansas history, and the number of jobs on the Kansas side pales in comparison to what? Just 100 or, or a few permanent jobs on the Missouri side, despite all that money being spent, Nick. That's exactly the point I was going to make. 100 jobs north of the river at a data processing center versus 4,000 plus several more Big thousand difference. in in, uh, in terms of supplier jobs to the Panasonic, Panasonic plant if it pans out. It's a hard word to say. Pans out, yeah. <laughs> While the U.S. Senate race in Missouri and the Kansas abortion <laughs> amendment are absorbing most of the media's election coverage, there are some other big decisions voters will be making in this upcoming August primary. Some viewers who've been advanced voting this week say they were surprised they were being asked to choose a new leader in Johnson County. Well, that's true. Ed Eilert is retiring at the end of the year after more than a decade at the helm and after 40 years in politics. The mayor of Roland Park, two sitting county commissioners and a CPA all want the job. I'm a CPA. I can lead this county and its huge budget into a more efficient place. Our county has had significant success. The trough is open to the big developers. There's only one candidate in this race that has the executive experience. There's only one candidate that has publicly stated his support for a woman's right to make her own health care decisions. Cal Palmer, those were excerpts from your recent debate with the candidates. Which of these candidates is going to be most like Ed Eilert and who is most likely to lead the county in a totally different direction. Well, you mentioned that there are two current sitting commissioners on um, in this race, and I think they both are, are the answers to your question. I think current Commissioner Shirley Allenbrand, who, who represents a part of southern Johnson County, maybe both temperamentally and maybe even generationally, are, is most uh, alike with, with Ed Eilert. Um, he's endorsed her, um, citing her positions on low taxes and economic development and support for schools. Um, the other commissioner in the race, Charlotte O'Hara, also representing another district in southern Johnson County, probably most unlike Eilert. Um, she has a very different uh, vision for the county. She's very skeptical of, of tax incentives Which for Which we just heard from her bike She there. has yeah. uh, clashed frequently with um, county staff, especially over public health mandates. She's been very critical of the public health department, openly uh, doubting masks and vaccines, said in our, in our forum that... She, um, uh, unprompted that she was not vaccinated and did not plan to get vaccinated. Um, and so just, again, temperamentally uh, very different from Eilert, has, has clashed with Eilert as well uh, on, the, on the board over the last couple of years. So that's probably the, the, the starkest difference. And then Selzer and Kelly also, I think, offer interesting choices as insider-outsiders. They're not in county government, uh, but they're politically experienced and they're known quantities within their sectors of Johnson County, for M sure. Mike Kelly said he is, as the mayor of Roland Park, the only one with executive experience, but he is a huge climate change activist in this community. 
community. He was one of the quickest mayors to enforce uh, COVID lockdowns and mask mandates. Um, Would he take the county in a far more left direction than any of these other candidates? I, I think far more left is too strong of a statement, Nick, but it would be more left than certainly what Ed Eilert has done. You know, all this may sound like uh, alphabet soup to some of your listeners uh, to this, but there's a a key question here that everyone should be aware of, and that is which of these people would be most willing to work with officials on the Missouri side in Kansas City, maybe even consider paying for some of the jewels of the metropolitan area, the stadiums, the sports stadiums, for example, uh, museums uh, for another one. Mike Kelly might be more inclined to have a dialogue about that more so than the other candidates. I would agree. That would be my statement as well. Sorry. Okay. Well, uh, you know, the thing is that Ed Eilert's legacy <laughs> is just his length of legacy and how forward-thinking he was for back in the day when he was still mayor of Overland Park in kind of just leading Johnson County to what it is today, building all that infrastructure out along Ridgeview, all the things, Garmin, every, I mean, everything. Who is going to be the leader that's going to have that type of vision for the going forward. That's what they need to match. And who that candidate is, we'll see. Nick, this is a seminal figure leaving the public stage here in Ed Eilert. Forty years at top levels of government in Johnson County. Uh, I underscore everything Mary said. This is someone who will be in the history books in Johnson County for many years to come. People will remember him, Nick. You know, our Missouri side viewers may be surprised to learn that the head of Jackson County government is also facing voters in a couple of weeks. What has Frank White done for our county? That's attorney and former small business owner Stacy Lake, who's challenging Frank White. White, of course, has a big name in this town after his time with the Kansas City Royals. How would Jackson County be different if Stacy Lake were leading instead of Frank White, Michael? It uh, would be very different uh, for lots of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that she's relatively new to the uh, Byzantine uh, aspects of Jackson County courthouse politics. Uh, quite frankly, I'm surprised that there wasn't a more serious primary or general election challenger to uh, Mr. White because of all the uh, problems with the There there was a League of Women Voters debate this week, which had to be canceled because Frank White didn't show up. Uh, Is he worried? He doesn't have to show up, Nick. He's a former Royals baseball great, and as such, he has great name ID, and he's probably going to win this race going away despite all the issues that Mike rightly points to here. Uh, Defeating Frank White despite the problems would be a monumental tax. The Johnson County Sheriff is not on the ballot this year, but he's making an awful lot of headlines. It's tragic um, what, what's happening in our county. Sheriff Calvin Hayden is being accused of interfering in the upcoming election by calling on the county to install security cameras to monitor ballot boxes, limiting the hours drop boxes are available, and for suggesting his officers be responsible for transporting the ballots to the election board. So what is Sheriff Calvin Hayden worried will happen if these procedures aren't implemented, Kyle? Well, he is saying that he's merely doing his due diligence as the county's top law enforcement official. Um, I think prompted by a lot of the outcry, um, he issued a statement this week maybe revealing a little bit more detail and background behind his investigation. And he said that since November 2021, his office has received more than 200 complaints from people who purport to be either witnesses or victims to election fraud. This runs in the face of 
um, repeated assertions, adamant assertions from county and state elected uh, election officials saying that there's no whiff of election fraud at all, that the elections in 2020 and 2021 um, were free and fair and the results valid and legitimate, but um, uh, Calvin Hayden is trying to portray this as just him doing his job and trying to, to make sure that all the, the, the boxes are checked. And wouldn't a lot of people in the county be happy to know that they would have trust in the integrity of the system because he's monitoring it with his officers? Well, I think the danger is to not listen to the voices that are actually in charge of the elections and the people who, like Scott Schwab, Secretary of State, Republican, who has said that these elections were secure. But he says he's just investigating it. He's not saying that there is any particular problem. Because he has got found 200 tips. Any. Well, he, I mean, the one specific thing that he has said in his repeated public pronouncements that have all, for what it's worth, been mostly to conservative groups, both here locally and around the country, he keeps raising this idea that he's suspicious that the, the number of uh, registered Democrats in Johnson County has gone up, and that just doesn't, quote, smell right to him. When, uh, of course, we've seen that trend play out in suburban metro areas across the country over the past five or six years, and even dating back before 2016. So there's nothing necessarily special or um, inexplicable about Democratic registrations going up. That is the one specific piece of, and I hesitate to call it evidence, but that's the one specific thing that he points to as like things that uh, might be raising his suspicions. But other than that, he's doing this interesting two-step of saying it's a criminal investigation, we can't reveal any evidence, but also going in public and saying, I have my suspicions. Mary's right. It's the people who run the elections who know what happened here, not some guy who's just receiving unfounded allegations from people out in the community. Now, speaking of ballot measures, if you thought you'd be voting on legalizing recreational marijuana in Missouri this fall, you may be disappointed. A new story from the Missouri Independent News Service claims the signature campaign has come up short in four of the six congressional districts required to make the ballot. Also falling short is a plan to ask voters to change the way elections are counted in the state, or conducted rather, by adopting ranked choice voting. We get the impression of course, that Missouri adds pretty much anything to the ballot, so it's not quite that easy, Mary? Well, apparently not under COVID. Um, that is what they're citing. They had hired a national organization to go out and gather these signatures. And generally, it's not, not it's, I mean, it's hard work, but it's an easy um, mark to hit. They, what they're saying is that under COVID that they couldn't just get out as much and people weren't out as much. So they're hopeful still. They have until I think next Tuesday for the counties to check these signatures and validate, but it's looking slim. Respectfully, the idea that uh, this is a COVID concern, I don't think that it's been difficult for petitioners to be in busy spots for most of the spring and certainly all of the summer. So why is why are they why are they struggling? I don't think they're getting their money's worth. I think they're getting scammed uh, uh, by the uh, initiative petition company. Does this speak to the challenge that um, groups that are trying now to put a, an amendment on the ballot in Missouri, for instance, or their abortion would face to try and get that accomplished? Well, clearly, and I don't know, Mike has alluded to this, I, I'm really surprised. I thought the recreational marijuana yeah. thing would sail through without much problem. I can begin to make a case why ranked choice voting might not, because that's a complicated concept and you've got to explain it to people and they're rushing into the grocery store and leave me alone. But but recreational marijuana, I thought the time has come, and here it's falling short. A national headline about COVID earlier this year declared shaming unvaccinated people has to stop. We've turned into an angry mob and it's getting ugly. Another declared shaming the unvaccinated 
doesn't work. So what are we to make this week of calls to trade or fire 10 Royals players who had to sit out the team's last series against Toronto because of Canada's restrictions on unvaccinated travellers? One sports columnist calling the 10 the most selfish men on the face of the earth. Meanwhile, in Kansas, Leewood Mayor Peggy Dunn also being publicly shamed with calls for her to resign after she appears in a political ad supporting the Value Them Both Amendment. I've read the Value Them Both Amendment and it doesn't ban abortion or remove exceptions. That's just a scare tactic. That's not a ban, it's just common sense. And it's why I'm voting yes on Value Them Both. It should be pointed out that Dunn spoke as a private citizen. Nowhere in the ad does it say that Dunn is the mayor of Leewood. So isn't she entitled to express her view on a point of moral conscience, Kyle? Absolutely. She has the right to, to say how she feels and, and to voice it. And I think she made that pretty clear, how she feels. And it was also eminently clear that she was doing it so as a private citizen, not in her official capacity. I also think... Um, this is my take that, you know, if she's going to voice a, a strong opinion on an, a matter of, of pretty great controversy that she, um, any public official should be prepared for, for criticism and or, or, uh, or uh, uh, opponents to, to voice mm -hmm. their opinions as well. She's a public figure in many realms in this, you know, a civic leader, really. So I don't know that she's always just tied to Leewood in a way. Um, and she obviously made the gamble that she wanted to speak out on this initiative and on the uh, amendment, and that's what she did. Whether they'll hold her accountable for it, I kind of doubt it. I mean, frankly, Peggy Dunn has been an institution in Leewood. I just, I don't see that changing. Should we be viewing what happened with the Royals any differently? Is that just public shaming too? Uh, there was an interesting letter in the paper this morning, uh, Michael, that's from Gate Hall in Bonner Springs, says whether they're vaccinated is nobody's business except those uh, between the men and their doctors. Why were the names and vaccination status, which is a private health matter, published in the first place? Well, uh, there's a couple of things here. Number one, in the instance of these individuals being professional sports folks, they're also in a chartered airplane flying all over the place uh, to, to go to games, and so they are potentially risking the health of their, uh, of their uh, teammates. And then the other thing that I think is really sort of sticking in the cross from Royals fans is the quote from uh, Whit Merrifield, who's one of the uh, better players on the, uh, on the team that struggles, is that, you know, if I were playing for a contender or I would get traded for a contender, yep. I'd get vaccinated. And that just doesn't sit right with fans of the team, and they're having an awful season, and that's just a little more salt in the wound. The man behind one of Kansas City's most polarizing artworks has died. Clays Oldenburg created the shuttlecocks on the lawn of the Nelson Atkins Museum. Before they became an iconic local symbol and slapped on everything from hats, shirts and socks, they were viewed as a monstrosity. That was back in 1994 when they first appeared outside the Nelson. Some felt the shuttlecocks made a mockery of the stately building behind them and couldn't be considered art. Nearly 30 years on, have Kansas Cityans changed their tune, Mary? I think they have. They've become, you know, kind of like a showcase behind uh, so many selfies. They also, they, people in general, didn't like the block edition and said that it was far too modern. And I don't hear that anymore. I mean, people kind of just tend to move on and accept these things. I've personally always liked them. I think they're just kind of whimsical and fun. You know, I, this is the second round with an Oldenburg uh, public piece of art that I've gone through in, uh, in downtown Des Moines. Uh, he put up in the 70s a, a steel umbrella, if you will, oh, right. uh, uh, a lot more impressionistic, and it was called Crusoe's Umbrella. And folks up in Des Moines were scratching their heads about it at the time. Now they're very much 
proud of it as a distinctive piece of art. And I always liked the shuttlecocks. I thought Love they were the fun. Shuttlecocks. I Love thought them. they were fun. <laughs> when you think about, you know, St. Louis has its gateway arch, is, yeah. are the shuttlecocks the most iconic image today of Kansas City? I think for people that comes pretty here? close, Nick. And uh, what a great counterpoint to that stately building behind it. I thought it was just a stroke of genius. Kyle, not the Museum of Prairie Fire in Johnson County or something like that. It is still the uh, iconic shuttlecocks. We'll give it another 20, 25 years. We'll see if Prairie Fire is there. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. When you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every story grabbing the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? It's just a sad day for North Kansas City. A North Kansas City police officer shot and killed after pulling over a driver for an expired tag. 16 years after his death, Buck O'Neill finally headed to the Hall of Fame, his induction ceremony this Sunday in Cooperstown, New York. No mask mandates, at least not yet, but more businesses and local governments requiring face coverings as COVID cases jump 25% in the last week. How are you staying cool? Kansas City melting in the hottest temperatures in four years. Police officers paid overtime for their commute to work, one finding in a bruising report into the Independence Police Department. If you're a regular train traveler, you'll know that COVID and budget cuts has disrupted service to St. Louis. This week, Amtrak restoring twice daily trains to Jefferson City and St. Louis. Is he defending all consumers or just being a nuisance? A Missouri man making national news as he sues Bass Pro for not standing by its lifetime sock guarantee. And did Kauffman Stadium just get its biggest attendance of the year? Sadly, it wasn't for the Royals, but a mega rock concert in center field. Alrighty, Mary Sanchez, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? Um, no, I actually did pick one of those stories and the death of the officer. Um, th as more details come out, it's just horrendous. I mean, he was executed. And over a traffic stop, which is one of the most dangerous times other than domestic violence cases for police officers. So it just underscores so many issues with firearms, the availability of firearms, and some dangers. Steve Kraske. Well, everybody's going to boo me here. I picked uh, COVID, Nick, and everyone in my orbit seems to have it right now. And I think folks got to think about putting the mask back on. I know I'm doing it now. And uh, it's another new day in this ongoing saga with a uh, pandemic. Kyle Palmer. Uh, well, we mentioned earlier, it kind of comes full circle, the, the DeSoto and how it will grow with this new Panasonic plant. We're seeing growing pains in the exurban outer parts of Johnson County already with this massive expansion of warehouses in Edgerton, outside of, mm -hmm. of Gardner Edgerton. And we just published a story this week about how homeowners down there are continuing to try to fight to block this. I mean, so this is like a 10 million square foot warehouse addition outside of the BNSF intermodal facility. They lost in court earlier or last month, and now they're trying to go to the Kansas Attorney General, who I also will say is running for governor, but to try to see if he might intervene in that case as well. So growing pains on the outer rims of Johnson County for sure. Michael. Buck O'Neill going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I had the uh, privilege of knowing the, uh, knowing the guy. It should have been done during his lifetime. Yes. He threw. He put many Negro League players deservingly in the Hall of Fame. He got... Uh, excluded uh, on a petty matter uh, when he was alive. I'm glad he's going in this weekend, and I'll be watching. Yes, and that ceremony Sunday afternoon. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed, thanks to our own Mary Sanchez and Kyle Palmer from the Shawnee Mission Post. From Channel 9, Michael Mahoney, and keeping you up to date weekdays at 9 on KCURFM, Steve Kraske. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, keep cool, and carry on.